0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the next hour here on WFMU Freeform Station of the Nation, live from downtown Jersey City in the great state of New Jersey, specifically sitting in Studio B this evening, as we're making some necessary repairs and improvements to Studio A. It's nice to be here. And I'm very glad that you have joined me for this show. We have a great interview, great interview all about privacy. My guest this evening is Carissa Belis, who is a professor at University of Oxford in Oxford, England, and has written just a, a fabulous book. Called "Privacy Is Power": Why and How You Should Take Back Control of Your Data. We're going to get into that book in a moment when I uh, play the interview. But I want to I want to say uh, at the very beginning of the show that after the interview, I think I'm going to have a few minutes to talk about this story that appeared in the Sunday New York Times just yesterday. And I think it I think it appeared on the New York Times website, maybe a day or two before that. And a couple of you sent it along to me. I did notice it. And it's a story that coincidentally ties perfectly into the themes in Carissa Velis's book, Privacy is Power. This story in the New York Times is talking about the new uh, Link 5G surveillance towers that Google and other companies are putting up And uh, if that sounds familiar, you might remember that I had an interview with journalist Molly Osberg just a few weeks ago uh, about her story about Link 5G. And um, I'm not going to revisit everything that Molly and I talked about, but I do want to take a few minutes after this interview to talk about how the New York Times has covered the rollout of these surveillance towers and why it's very important for us to keep uh, an eye out for the, the developments in the growing surveillance state in New York City and elsewhere. But first, let's get to this interview with Carissa Velis uh, to talk about her book, Privacy is Power, uh, to, to explain why privacy is important. I mean, it's just a, a, basic, uh, a, a, a basic axiomatic explanation of why, The themes in this show are so important, I believe, why I continue to talk about privacy and the threats to privacy from surveillance. Uh, It's it's just a a really helpful book to establish that baseline uh, with lots of examples and different case studies. If you'd like to join in the live listener chat, go to WFMU.org and click Playlist and Comments, and you can join other listeners chatting away there. If you're listening in the future to an archive or podcast version of the show go to tectonic.fm that's t-e-c-h tonic.fm find the november 7 2022 show and click the playlist link you can see all the show links and the comments that everyone had during this evening's show and now let's go ahead and listen to my interview with carissa velis here on tectonic on wfmu Teresa Belice, welcome to Tectonic.
1: Thank you for having me, Mark.
0: It's great to have you on the show. I really enjoyed reading your book, Privacy is Power Why and How You Should Take Back Control of Your Data. This book, if Tectonic listeners want one book to read that encapsulates what I've been trying to tell you for the last five years, <laughs> this is the one Privacy is Power. There are some important key themes that I'm going to get to in this interview, but I just want to start with a statement you made very early on in the book, making a case for privacy in today's world. You wrote, Carissa, that a world without privacy is a dangerous one. Can you say what you mean by that if if people are wondering why privacy is so important?
1: Yes, thank you. So I think we have the sense that privacy is something of a luxury, something of a personal preference or an individual kind of taste, but actually there's a reason for why privacy is included in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and that's because it is important to protect people from possible abuses of power. And as long as people are people and institutions are institutions, there will always be the temptation to abuse power. We will always be vulnerable to that. And that's why privacy will always be important. And it's very important to keep people safe. So if you want to be physically safe, you typically don't go around giving your address to just anyone. If you want to be financially safe, you typically don't go around publishing uh, your credit card card number, and so on and so forth. So I think that we have forgotten this very primal function of privacy in recent times.
0: Yeah, I think you mentioned in the book, if People wonder if they're committed to privacy or not. Just ask yourself, would you be comfortable sharing your email password, your credit card numbers, everything else to perfect strangers on the street? And yet, Carissa, and yet we are in a society now where millions and millions of American families, you're in the UK, I'm sure it's happening there too, have loaded up their homes with spy devices manufactured by the most powerful surveillance institutions in the history of the world, uh, which collectively I call Big Tech. The data can be shared with other surveillance agencies within the government, whether US or UK or elsewhere. What do you say to people who say, well, of course, I'm not going to give my credit card number or email password, but we can trust Amazon because Amazon is always telling us or Google is always telling us that privacy is their number one commitment?
1: I think if we told some of our ancestors, particularly ones who were witnesses to how personal data was used during the Second World War by the Nazi regime, mainly to find and assassinate people, they would be, I think we would give them a heart attack to tell them that we have created this business model and this economy that is fundamentally based on surveillance. Of course, it might seem innocuous because, you know, as you say, people can think, well, we live in a democracy and these companies have promised that that they care about privacy. And there are lots of responses. One thing is, of course, that marketing is not the same as truth. And companies trade in marketing and not necessarily truth. So when a company says that we really care about your privacy, it doesn't necessarily mean that's true. And if we look at the actions of many of these companies, they seem to suggest that they don't care about people's privacy. So that's one thing. And furthermore, that we live in democracies is very contingent. And democracies are democracies for a reason. We shouldn't take them for granted. Not because we live in a democracy today, will we live in a democracy tomorrow? And the quality of democracies can get er- eroded. So sometimes people tell me things like, well, you know, if I lived in China, I would be very worried about my data being out there, but because I live in the US or or, uh, Europe, then I'm not too worried. But of course, when we give the amount of power and the amount of data to a government... Even when it's a democratic government, we risk sliding into authoritarianism. First, because the nature of power changes institutions themselves. So democracies are democracies because we decide not to give governments too much power. And if we do, then they might not be democracies for long. And secondly, because you never know who's going to be elected in the future. So it's not difficult to imagine a dictator being uh, elected in the near future in a democratic country because The best predictor of something happening in the future is if it's happened in the past. And we know that's happened in the past.
0: You write very forcefully and lyrically on the importance of privacy to democracy. And I would even add to what you just said that it's not just that we have to be careful about who might be elected next you made a very strong case that there have already been changes afoot. We have lived through 20-something years of changes already to American democracy. In Chapter 2 of your book, Privacy is Power, you write an answer to the question, how did we get here? You write that there are three interlocking inputs to this surveillance state that we are now increasingly living under. One was Google's discovery that personal data resulting from our digital lives could be very profitable. As Shoshana Zuboff, past guest on the show, wrote about in her book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, Google really pioneered this business model of intrusive surveillance and monetization of that. Second, you write the terrorist attacks of September 11th kicked off a new uh, surveillance-friendly attitude and regime within the federal government, and then finally, the mistaken belief that privacy is an outdated value, which is a lie that the tech companies continue to try to sell to us in their marketing, as you say. You write that an outcome of this surveillance state of these three interlocking inputs is that data collection is poisoning our lives, institutions, and societies. So we have plenty of recent history to worry about already.
1: Yeah, that's true. And perhaps something to point out is in your last question, you asked about companies collecting information. And so sometimes people think, well, I'm worried about the government, but as long as it's companies, then that's fine. Because And, and this is an intuitive thought because companies don't have the power to arrest you, for instance, or not like the police. But it's nevertheless very misleading because in our day and age, Whatever data gets collected is being exchanged from public institutions to private ones and vice versa. So whatever data is out there on you is likely to end up in the hands of both governments and corporations, and not only your government, by the way, but other kinds of governments, either because they buy that data or because they hack it. So in the exchange between governments and companies, we know a lot of examples, but just to name a few Companies collect a lot of data, and then authorities can access that data in various ways. One is through asking it for it with a warrant, and that is not the easiest or possibly more common way to do it, but they can actually just buy that data. So in the United States, there was a case in which a court case established that for not very serious crimes, the government shouldn't have access to people's phones and, and locations, and it turned out that later on the government was just buying that data instead of accessing it in other ways and that's perfectly legal anyone can buy this data and that's part of the concerning thing and likewise when governments collect a lot of data it often ends up in in the hands of corporations and that's more and more the case partly because governments have so much data these days that they they are not qualified or capable to even process that data on their own. So they need to hire companies to do that for them. They also hire companies to store that data for them. And they also hire companies, for instance, during the pandemic, they hired companies like Palantir to help them get insights from the data. So we already have a track record of very concerning cases, and it's they're not concerning only because that's very sensitive information. We didn't necessarily consent in a meaningful way for them to get that information. And that in itself is kind of alarming, but also in the ways these um, that this data is being used. It's being used for marketing in ways that are quite questionable, you might think, well, what do I care if I get the ads of the shoes I like? But it's not only shoes. The kind of categories that people get boxed into are things like whether you've been the victim of a rape or whether you suffer from erectile dysfunction or from HIV. Um, They're very, very sensitive categories. They're also used oftentimes to discriminate against people. And we know this because we know, for instance, that people who are not white have much worse chances of getting a loan in the United States. And even when their external markers, like how much they earn and how much they have in the bank are the same as their white peers. And the process through which people get loans is heavily influenced by the personal data being collected on them. It's used to influence elections, which is one of the most concerning uses, as we saw in the case of Cambridge Analytica. And what's really worrying is that we've done nothing to make sure that doesn't happen again. Absolutely nothing. So just a few days ago, there was an article written um, and published in, in The Guardian mentioning how the U.S. midterm elections are coming up and researchers from NYU have been testing different social media companies and the worst social media company appears to be TikTok, um, even though they claim to have made some efforts in this regard. When researchers put the algorithm to the test, they realized that ninety percent of misinformation is just going through. So we are not having the necessary requirements to make sure that our elections will be fair and that they will be that they will have integrity, and, and that is incredibly concerning for democracy.
0: And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst, I'm your host. We are halfway through my interview with Carissa Velis, author of the book Privacy is Power. She's a professor at the University of Oxford in England and has written a fantastic book describing why privacy is important and why and how we should defend it. If you would like to join in the live listener chat, go to wfmu.org, click playlist and comments, and you can join in the conversation with other listeners. Let's go ahead and listen to the second half of my interview with Carissa Belis here on Tectonic on WFMU. Okay, so let's let's review. You have governments who have already collected data, but they can't store it or analyze it using their own hardware and software. So they go to the big tech companies to help them with that. Conversely, you have governments who want data, but who don't have it or can't get it for some reason for their own processing. So they go to the big tech companies to get the data. And so you have this close partnership. And that partnership of big government and big tech and with their Wall Street partners, that, that amalgamated blob of, of money and power is deeply concerning. So let me give listeners an example that I don't think I had come across this one before. You write, investigators can now ask Google to disclose everyone who searched for a particular keyword as opposed to asking for information on a known suspect. So as I understand it, Carissa, you're saying that as you said before it's hard to get a warrant so why not just look for everyone who searched for a certain keyword on google is that still happening
1: yeah that's still happening and these are very kind of broad warrants because they don't target a particular individual which was how these things used to work in the old days so you had a suspect and you had reason to think that this person might be involved with a crime and then you applied for a warrant Uh, but now the government can ask Google, well, who searched for whatever it is from like um, pressure cookers? So there was a case in which there was there were people who had SWAT teams knock on their door after the Boston Marathon um, terrorist attack because th- these people used uh, pressure cookers. But of course, a lot of people look for and buy pressure cookers who are perfectly innocent citizens to whether they maybe search for the wrong address, you know, an an address that is close to or related to an address in which a crime was committed. And in this way, they get access to the data of mostly innocent people.
0: And you continue on that same page by saying, by outsourcing surveillance to private companies, the government has found a way to bypass Supreme Court rulings. So here's a way for the government, if it feels like the law, as decided by the Supreme Court of the United States is too inconvenient for them, or too restrictive for something they don't agree with, they simply call up Google or Amazon or one of their other tech partners and get it done that way.
1: Or they buy data from a data broker, which anyone can buy. So technically they're not doing anything illegal, nowhere near illegal actually, but they are clearly breaking the spirit of the law. So that is why I argue that we should end the trade in personal data personal data shouldn't be the kind of thing that you can buy or sell. And even in the most capitalist of societies, we agree that there are certain things that should be outside of the market. We don't buy or sell people. We don't buy or sell organs. We don't buy or sell the results of football matches. We don't buy or sell votes because if we did, that would completely erode democracy. And for the same reasons, we shouldn't buy or sell personal data because it gets misused in these ways.
0: Yeah, you're very clear about uh, the danger of data brokers and what we should do about it. I thought you had a nice turn of phrase at the beginning of uh, chapter four, which is called toxic data. You write, personal data is the asbestos of the tech society. You quote Bruce Schneier, uh, cybersecurity expert, saying that personal data is a toxic asset. What are some of the main ideas that you're trying to get across in presenting personal data to us as asbestos?
1: Well, I think it's a great analogy. And very often with technology, we only hear the positives, right? We hear from the companies that this is going to be great, that this is going to be very efficient. And we tend to think about technology as a good thing, but of course, technology can create its own problems. So I remember I, I once attended a lecture by Professor Joe Wolf from Oxford, who started his lecture asking, well, what are the, the greatest advancements, technological advancements of the 19th century? And people ended up saying, well, probably plastics and nuclear energy. And what are the greatest problems we have to deal with in the 20th century? Right. Well, probably plastics and nuclear energy. So asbestos is a great analogy because it's a mineral that is very cheap, it's very easy to mine, and it's incredibly helpful because it's very durable, it's very hard for it to catch fire. So we put it everywhere. We put it on our ceilings, in our tiles, in our cars, in plumbing, and then years later it turned out that it's incredibly toxic as well. And every year hundreds of thousands of people die because they get cancer from asbestos and there's no safe threshold of exposure. And in the same way, personal data, yes, it's very cheap to mine. Yes, it can be very useful, but it's also very toxic. And if we don't look at the other side of data, we will do what we are currently doing, which is um, collecting as much personal data as possible and selling it to the highest bidder. And that's creating all kinds of power imbalances that is not taking us to the kind of society that I argue we should want to live in. A society in which there's freedom, a society in which there's democracy, in which there's a good balance of power, in which there's equality and fairness.
0: Yeah, this society that we should be living in, that we should be working towards, you write a final chapter called What You Can Do that gives a number of steps that individuals can take to start working their way towards that better society. Of course, we're going to need collective action as well, but there are some things that individuals can do. And I don't have time to go through all these, but again, the, the book is Privacy is Power. It's the last chapter, and people should go in and read this book to see your picks for web browsers and search engines, messaging apps, email platforms, devices, ad blockers, and more. It's a really helpful resource that you finish the book with. Uh, and I agree with these picks. I mean, I, I would recommend that that people take a close look at those, so I'm glad you put those in. But maybe as a, as a final topic for this interview, Carissa, I want to go back to one of the key themes in the book that you have mentioned a couple of times already in this interview, and that's the theme of power. I'm so glad that you focused on the relevant power relations that are affecting us in this surveillance society, and as you write, the asymmetry of power, in which citizens have less and less power, and these big tech companies and their government partners are arrogating themselves to more and more power, which is totally antithetical, as you write, to the idea of democracy. But you, you wrote something really important about a couple of these companies that is an important clarification. Here's what you write. It's about Facebook and Google. You wrote, Facebook does not technically sell your data, nor does Google. They sell the power to influence you. They sell the power to show you ads and the power to predict your behavior. Google and Facebook are only technically in the business of data. They are mostly in the business of power. You developed that idea very effectively in this chapter, talking about the power that is inherent in data and the steps we need to take as citizens of democracies to reclaim our power. And that's gonna mean reclaiming our privacy.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think by now, most people are aware that their data can be sold, that it's worth some money. And of course, money is very important part of this puzzle. But even more important than money is power, because power doesn't only get you money, it gets you money too, but it gets you all kinds of things like the power to change laws or to break the law and uh, go scot-free. Bertrand Russell had this insight that we should think about power as energy in that by its very nature, it's something that can transform itself from one kind into another. So if you have enough financial power, you can buy yourself military power. If you have enough military power, you can buy yourself political power. If you have enough political power, you can buy yourself other kinds of power. And this new power of data is very important right now, because we have never had the ability to collect so much data, nor to process it and get insights from it. And that means that we have forecasting abilities that weren't there before and that are playing a big role in today's geopolitics, but also in today's national politics. Essentially, we, we have known for a long, long time that there is a very important relationship between knowledge and power. Francis Bacon argued that the more knowledge you have on someone, the more power you have over them. Therefore, the more somebody knows about you, the more vulnerable you are to them. And it is this. I think this is a very intuitive insight. But the contrary is also true. The more power you have, the more knowledge you have. And it's not only that power gains you access to knowledge. So the power that a company has gains access to knowledge in the ways that they collect that data, for instance. But it's also that when you have enough power, you get to decide what counts as knowledge. And that's very interesting because when a company like Google collects a lot of data on a person, and then on the basis of that data, labels that person as one thing or another whether it's like this person is having a midlife crisis or it's prone to depression or or whatever it is they get to decide what counts as knowledge about you and that knowledge might be wrong it might be, be out of context it might be outdated and you don't get a say in it you don't even get to know what they have decided counts as knowledge about you so it's very important to address these power asymmetries that we have fallen into and one way to address them is to make sure that, on the one hand, we know a lot more about these companies and what they do and how how much data they collect and how they process it and what kind of labels they use on us. But on the other hand, to make sure that they know a lot less about us.
0: Uh, Carissa, <laughs> I have to ask one last question. This is this is such a great book, and you have delivered the clearest single-volume treatment of what's going wrong and what we can do about it that I think I've covered on the show. Um, Thank you. You're a professor at the University of Oxford, you're in the Faculty of Philosophy and the Institute for Ethics in AI, which has got to be kind of a a tough job looking for ethics in AI these days. (laughs) That's for a, a different conversation, but here's a question, are you optimistic? After you've done all this research and everything that you're seeing in your research at Oxford, are you optimistic for our future in this technological society? I
1: am cautiously optimistic, and especially in the long run. So when I started researching privacy, I got ridiculed. <laughs> you know, people were saying, like, privacy is part of history. It's not. It's a non-topic. You know, why don't you work on roles or something that people are actually talking about, especially philosophers? And of course, now we're talking a lot about privacy, and I see that as progress. Um, For all its faults, the GDPR has changed the conversation worldwide about privacy, and nobody thought it would be be able to come into existence, even just a couple of years before it did. People were absolutely uh, negative about it. So I think that we are much more aware of what's going on. We have more tools than we used to to tackle these issues. I think that regulating big tech is the task of our time. You know, previous generations have regulated their own industries, whether it was the railroad or, sorry, the railway or uh, cars or pharmaceuticals. Um, they Sometimes they did it better, sometimes they did it worse. And this is the task of our generation. I do worry that in the short term, we might get it wrong. We might not get our act together in time and there might be something terrible happening, like personal data being used again for genocide in the West. And it has to be in the West because if it's elsewhere, we apparently don't learn about uh, other people's experiences. So personal data has already, and you know, a platform like Facebook has already had very problematic effects in um, Myanmar including genocide and but apparently we we don't learn enough about what happens elsewhere so I think that there are two options ahead either we get our act together and we regulate the data economy and we prevent much unnecessary harm or we wait until something terrible happens and then we'll get our act together because this current data economy is so toxic for society that I think it's unsustainable. So I'm optimistic in the long run. We are going to change this, just like we outlawed theft and other kinds of uh, very dodgy business models. The question is whether we'll do it soon enough to avoid unnecessary harm.
0: Well, if Tectonic has anything to do with it, we're going to get on this. and We're going to get this solved. The book is Privacy is Power. Listeners, read it. It's by my guest, Carissa Villis. Carissa, thanks so much for being on Tectonic today.
1: Thank you so much, Mark. It's been a
2: pleasure.
0: And we're back. If you are just tuning in, are listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host. We have some time. 26 or so minutes, 27 minutes before Dave Mandel comes in with It's Complicated, his prog rock show. We just heard my interview with Carissa Velis, author of the excellent new book. Well, new, its it's been out for couple years the the uh, the paperback version the softcover version is fairly new it's called the book is called privacy is power why and how you should take back control of your data and if it sounds from the subtitle like a like a how-to book like a manual it's it's really not there is a section near the end as I mentioned uh, in the interview where Velis is uh, going over a number of tips here are tools you can use, here are practices you might try. And I might read you out some of those as as we're going through this because I want to read you uh, a couple of quotes from this book. Really, the book is a heartfelt, as I said at the top of the show, argument for why privacy is important in a society where, in my experience, friends, uh, a lot of people, maybe even most people, who I come in contact with when, outside of the show, I mean, um, just normal conversations, many to most people I deal with are just, they're just unaware of the toxicity of the personal data that's floating around in our growing surveillance state. I mean, that sentence would make very little uh, sense to most people who, who I've encountered. And I'm, I'm not saying this to criticize these people. I'm just saying they're not yet aware. And, and who can blame them? Because the, uh, the major news sources, one of which I'm going to quote from here in a few minutes, and the, and the companies themselves that are funding those news organizations, uh, they have no interest in people understanding the uh, drastic and, and urgent need we have to clean up this, this toxic data sludge that's all around us. It's in the financial interest of the big tech companies, their wall street partners, and increasingly their government partners at the federal state and municipal level, including municipal here in New York city. It's in their interest. As I said, that, that vast amalgamated blob of money and power, it's in their interest for people not to understand what's at stake. Because they're making a lot of money and they're, frankly, they're making and protecting a lot of power by surveilling everyone to the nth degree and giving us no knowledge of what's happening and no way to opt out of it. And as Carissa said at the end of the interview, this is going to change at some point. It And, and I agree with her, this is going to change. It's, um we can either, <laughs> as they say in the movies, we can either do this the easy way or the hard way. The easy way, which is still pretty difficult, is if everybody would just wake up and start to take some actions. I and mean, here I'm, I, I know that tectonic listeners, you're aware of this. And, and many of you have reported on the comment board or you've, you've emailed me at mark at wfmu.org to tell me steps that you've taken. In your own lives, or personal lives, or at work, or somewhere, to start protecting your data—that's good. I, I mean, the the vast, vast majority of people out there who simply are not aware—they're just not aware of this. Um, we have an opportunity if somehow we could pass the word to everyone, uh, contrary to the financial interests of big tech and all of all of the uh, media that that they uh so so generously support on a daily basis um it's it's not in their interest to pass this word so it's going to be up to us and like-minded people if we could get some action on this we might be able to avoid the hard way and as carissa said we have seen some examples of the hard way to learn what's at stake when you look at places like myanmar where According to a United Nations report of the massacre that, uh, that occurred there, Facebook was complicit in genocide. And, and the, the tie between social media algorithms and big tech surveillance and, uh, and, and addiction loops and harmful outcomes, I mean, measurably harmful outcomes, this ranges from genocide in Myanmar to... Uh, mental health issues for, for teenage girls uh, to all sorts of other uh, uh, documented instances of real harm, both on an individual and on a, on a societal level, that shows that these big tech companies are monetizing the harm and the illness that they are socializing onto the rest of us. Um, if we don't do anything about this privacy problem, this problem of toxic data sludge, we are going to see that amplify and amplify and amplify until, as Carissa said, we're going to see something truly awful happen. And that's the moment when everyone's going to wake up and they're going to say, my goodness, how do we let it go this far where the most powerful organizations of the world are able to surveil us every moment of our lives and do whatever they want with the data? How did we let this happen? Why didn't anyone warn us? Why didn't we take any preventative action beforehand? And now here we are. I hope someone will listen to this broadcast way back in 2022. You have a a little independent (laughs) radio host telling you the time is now to take some actions. I want to read you a bit from Privacy is Power. This, this uh, This is from the... This is from that chapter, I think, where Carissa's saying, here's some things that you can do. But this is a, a, general, uh, a general thought about what really should happen right now. Here's what Velis writes To change our privacy landscape, we have to write about it, persuade others to protect their and our privacy, get organized, unveil the inner workings of the abusive system that is the surveillance society, support alternatives envision new possibilities and refuse to cooperate in our own surveillance. I thought that was so well stated and on that topic of refusing to cooperate. Veilis writes, this is uh, a good deal later in that same chapter, but it picks up on that same theme. It's a section called Refuse the Unacceptable. Here's what Veilis writes. Refuse the unacceptable I borrow this phrase from Stefan Hessel's The Power of Indignation. Hessel was a concentration camp survivor, a member of the French resistance, and was later involved in the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. What does Stefan Hessel, Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, Nelson Mandela, and all the other heroes who've made the world a better place have in common? They refused the unacceptable. Our heroes are not people who inhabit injustices comfortably. They do not accept the world that has been given to them when it is an unacceptable world. They are people who dissent when it is necessary. And friends, this is a moment when dissent and resistance is necessary for the good of all of us. It's not for the good of a few privacy activists. It's for the good of all of us. One of the points that Valise makes in this book again and again is that privacy is collective. It's a little bit like climate change or, 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 or food safety. I mean, it, it's, it, it's, a, it's a whole system that affects all of us. We can take some steps and we should, and there's some tips in this book to protect our own data. You can, you can use a better browser. Don't ever use Google Chrome. You can use a better email. Don't ever use Gmail. You can use a better search engine. Don't ever use Google search. You can make some better choices. And, and, and has has alternatives in this book that, that are listed. But really, it's going to take a collective effort. Because if your neighbor installs an Amazon ring on their front door and it looks into your home, well, your neighbor's privacy compromising decision now affects your privacy. If you have a relative who sent in DNA to a DNA testing company, well, (laughs) that DNA testing company now essentially has your DNA because your relative compromised your privacy by sending the, the family DNA into the DNA testing company. Privacy is collective. And now is the time for us to dissent. Now is the time for us to resist. I wanna read you the, uh, from the last page of this book. And Carissa Velis writes, privacy is too important to let it wither. Who you are and what you do is nobody's business. You are not a product to be turned into data and fed to predators for a price. You are not for sale. You are a citizen and you are owed privacy. It's your right. Privacy is how we blind the system so that it treats us impartially and fairly. It's how we empower our citizenry. It's how we protect individuals, institutions, and societies from external pressures and abuse. It's how we mark out a space for ourselves in which we can freely relax, bond with others, explore new ideas, and make up our own minds. It might seem radical to call for the end of the data economy, but it's not. It's just the status quo that makes it seem that way. What is extreme is having a business model that depends on the mass violation of rights. Widespread surveillance is incompatible with free democratic and liberal societies in which human rights are respected. It has to go. And that's from the last page of Privacy is Power by Carissa Velis, an important book that I hope, listeners, you'll get a hold of and you'll read yourself to understand how important this is. Velis is putting into very stark, clear, easily understandable, lo- logical language the sorts of messages that I have been trying to say for the last five years. Now is the time for us to dissent from the status quo or else all of us are in trouble. And with that, thank you to Carissa Valis for being on the show. Here I have, I am a weekend subscriber to the New York Times. And I got this Sunday New York Times. And here's this Link 5G story that I told you about at the top of the show. And the online headline is different. You can find it on the playlist at WFMU.org. But in the print version if you can believe this, this is a story about these thirty two foot high that's three meter sorry, sorry, ten meter high towers that are uh, purporting to deliver 5 g wireless access, Wi-Fi access to uh, neighboring buildings on that block. And uh, what the what the article does not say and what the coverage very rarely points out is that, Each tower comes with a camera and other unknown surveillance sensors that have not yet been disclosed. At least that was the case with the predecessor of Link uh, NYC, which were three-meter towers. Uh, So anyway, here's the story. It's so interesting how the New York Times uh, editors framed this story. And the framing starts with the very, (coughs) and I mean the very first word of this story, the headline is, Progress is tall and startling. There it is, friends. They introduced the Link 5G surveillance towers to New Yorkers with the word progress. And that tells you almost everything you need to know about this story. Progress is coming, New Yorkers, and uh, it may be tall. I mean, sure. It's 10 meters tall and that can be startling at first. But don't you worry, your pretty little heads. It is, after all, progress. Uh, and uh, Lincoln Y C is mentioned to the credit of the New York Times. They did mention uh, Lincoln Y C, which is a a failing project. They, uh, I believe, were sued or were almost sued by the city for basically defaulting on their agreement to actually generate revenue for the city. Uh, this, I mean, <laughs> in addition to being opaque and unaccountable, it seems that the Link NYC system is also incompetent. So it's it's both evil and stupid. Great, great combination that I can think of a few companies who are perfecting that. But anyway, moving on. The the story moves on to say, <coughs> as is often the case when something new appears on the city streetscape, people seem startled by the large structures, and some have expressed unfounded fears about 5g okay let's let's take this apart shall we as it is often the case when something new appears now here is the new york times telling us once again don't worry about this new startling new uh, example of progress the the sign of technical technological progress might be new and as it's often the case something new appears and people seem startled by the large structures it's infantilizing oh you're startled by the large structure that's really condescending and so then they have some quotes from people who say various things like uh, no one asked me, I'm on a community board or I'm, a, I'm, I'm in a block association and all of a sudden, we wake up one day and there is a 10 meter tower on our block, what, it, what is this? No one knew what this, no one asked for this, no one wanted this, no one needs this. Everyone on this block has internet access already, we don't need this. And incidentally, for if you go back to my Molly Osberg show, this is the August 22, 2022 show. You can find it at tectonic.fm, T E C H Tonic.fm. Find it, the August 22, 2022 show, when I talked with Molly Osberg about her story in, in uh, Hellgate about the Link 5G surveillance towers. There's all sorts of problems and questions about these towers. The Wi Fi does not seem to uh, go, go very far. Uh, And she also talked to a resident or two um, there in the Bronx. And they also said, I don't know why this is even here. We don't need this. And on that playlist, I think there's another story uh, that I think was in the city. You can find it on the playlist. It was either in Molly Osberg's or in the city coverage. Someone was quoted saying, why is the city putting up 10-meter-high towers when there are efforts already afoot to bring 5G access or wireless internet access to underserved neighborhoods in New York City. And you know, you can use rooftops, you can use things like NYC Mesh, you can use little repeaters. You don't need a 10 meter high tower with a camera on top and who knows what other surveillance sensors taking data down about New York citizens. It goes right to what Carissa Valis was saying. The government and their technology partners are destroying citizens' privacy, and that is not compatible with a democracy. We have to do something about this. And then they go on and they say, they quote this uh, computer science professor from Worcester Polytechnic Institute, uh, also known as WPI, there in Worcester, Mass., And this, I'm not going to say his name because I'm embarrassed uh, that a computer science professor would say the following thing. Assuming he was properly quoted, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he was misquoted. Because this, really, for a computer science professor, is embarrassing. This professor says the tower, quote, cannot just blast energy everywhere. It's going to be hyper-focused points of energy going directly to your cell phone, unquote. So this is reassuring everyone that if as as one of the as one of the residents quoted in the story said there is a giant as the time story says human being sized antenna that is directly outside the bedroom of her five-month-old son and she has questions what the new york times calls unfounded fears she has questions is it really good for my five-month-old son to be 10 feet, you know, three meters from a giant antenna that is serving up the internet to uh, who knows how many dozens or hundreds of homes. That's what it was uh, claiming to do anyway. Is it safe from a health perspective? And of course, the city says, well, of course, ma'am, it's perfectly safe. And this computer science professor comes to back up the reassurance that the New York Times is repeating on behalf of these towers and their corporate partners. And this computer science professor says, don't worry, the tower isn't blasting energy everywhere. It finds your cell phone and it hyper focuses points of energy directly into the phone. Does this professor understand how antennas work? (laughs) Maybe he was misquoted. And then he says at the end of his quote, well, you'll get used to it. And that to me was, that was was the cherry on top. Oh, that's finally the last defense that they always give. Well, there may be issues with this, that, privacy, health, destroying your views, not including residents, but in the end, in the end, you'll get used to it. And the tech companies will get paid and uh, go back to sleep citizens. It's all inevitable. You can't change it, which I totally reject. (laughs) I refuse the unacceptable. And there is one last part about this story that I want to bring up that the New York Times made zero mention of, and that is who is behind these towers. And Molly Osberg and I talked about this. And when I have done previous shows, even before Molly Osberg's show about Link NYC, I have dwelled on who is behind the towers because it's so important to understand how money and power flow with these projects. All the New York times said is it's the team of city bridge, the city bridge team. And sometimes you hear it online, uh, described as the city bridge consortium. It just sounds so neutral and it's a consortium. Consortium doesn't do anything wrong. And, uh, and that's exactly the design. Yes, yeah, CityBridge, no one's ever heard of CityBridge. It's a, it's a team, it's a consortium, whatever. They put up a tower, they're working with Verizon. It's, I don't know, some, some, some consortium putting up a tower. No, it is not. It's Google. It's Google behind the towers. CityBridge is Google. It's a consortium of a bunch of companies. Yeah, not all of them are worth a trillion dollars. There's a few of them in the consortium. One of them is a trillion dollar company, the others ain't. Guess who runs the consortium? Someone says, well, it's not Google, it's Google's parent company, Alphabet. Okay, okay, it's Alphabet. And you know what Alphabet is? Google! The Link 5G towers are run by the pioneer of surveillance capitalism, Google. Do you really think that a 10 meter tower with a camera and who knows what other sensors that we're not getting enough information about is not engaged in surveillance of New York citizens? What are the chances of that? Next week, by the way, I'm gonna pick up on this theme. We're gonna do a whole show on the harms of digital technology that are not being reported, not widely anyway. I hope you will tune in for that. Thank you very much for being with me this evening. I got to make way here in a couple minutes for the great Dave Mandel, and it's complicated. You are listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM, and online at WFMU.org. Until next time, friends, avoid Apple, abandon Amazon, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, get off Google, and finally, I have a little treat for you, right in line with this book, Privacy is Power. My friend and senior DJ of WFMU, Erwin, who you can hear every Wednesday, you can, you should, you must hear every Wednesday between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. on these airwaves, has provided me the WFMU updated privacy policy update by none other than Gus Bodenheim, who uh, you really should listen to Irwin's show and you will hear from Gus Bodenheim. And I'm very happy to tell you that WFMU has updated its privacy policy and you should know what it is. Take it away, Gus.
2: Dear, dear listeners, your long wait is over. You've been asking and you bet we've been listening. And finally, the time has come. Gus Bodenheim here, proud to bring you and Hot, your personal, all-new, privacy notice update. Yes, we've updated our privacy policy and here with purport to give you the latest information on how we collect and use your personal data. You see, we've been busy bees, making little changes and wee tweaks to our legal agreements that will apply to you henceforth. And if you're the kind of person ever alert to updated information regarding how we collect, collate, disseminate, and yes, exploit your listening preferences, you're going to want to keep it right here on WFMU while I give you the rundown. Whenever you use your mobile device, personal computer, or other digi-transponder to access programs such as this one, you entrust to us your personal data, your emotional well-being, and your very safety. Even when listening via mere radio, you are handing over more of yourself than you suspect in even your most paranoid marijuana-fueled anxiety attacks. We're committed to keeping that trust, and whenever it becomes necessary to violate it, to do so in the most distransparent and gentle manner possible under the circumstances. This includes sending personalized recommendations and offers about partner products, features and services, and third-party intrusions of staggering ubiquity online chat commentary will be understood to be the property of that specific chat stream's authorized major domo, or his personally designated adjutant or surrogate, maybe me. Granted, the eyes of even those hardy few who read privacy statements glaze over by this point, and likewise we trust that listeners are by now like unto woodland animals, chewing their own legs off to escape a hunter's trap. All the better, and who could blame them? But let's say you're actually paying attention. You can endeavor to learn more about and acquire a mistaken sense of control over how we use your data for these purposes by reviewing our in depth, unexpurgated, updated privacy notice down yonder at the old.org. There may you find what you seek, Pilgrim, despite a deliberately daunting clutter of subclauses, footnotes, and unaccountable elisions. This update will be effective as of Thursday and will remain in effect until the next privacy update, whether announced like this or sprung stealthily in the deep of some upcoming night, while the world innocently sleeps and nobody's the wiser. Our privacy practices are subject to not only our whims, but all applicable laws in the places in which we operate. That's all, or most of the tri-state region, as well as most worldwide hinter zones reached by our cunning array of info-catalyzers, including but not limited to radio and other analog and digital delivery determinants. This means, in essence, that we engage in the practices described in this notice in a particular county or bailiwick. Only if permitted under the laws of those places Barring overriding considerations of station wellness and whatever might provisionally match our creative interpretations of media equity. Ah, your ears perked up there, didn't they? Relax. In addition, please note the following. The entire WFMU team user victimization agreement expressly prohibits contradiction. But we welcome any questions you may have in re the conditions and terms laid out so ambiguously herein. Send them on a postcard to privacy, Pueblo, Colorado. Just between us, this privacy notice update was brought to you by the Ad Council and me, Gus Bodenheim.
3: Oh my. It's another installment of It's Complicated with me, your host Dave Mandel. Thrilled to be here. I've had (laughs) I've had a hellish day today, but we're all here in heaven now, and everything's gonna be okay. An hour of Prague and Prague adjacent music coming your way. Thanks for joining me. We began as usual with a very short intro theme from yes 5% for nothing and I'm gonna dive into the music I'm gonna start off with I'm gonna start the show this week with a couple of more contemporary <laughs> pieces of music meaning you know like 1980s <laughs> or 90s but uh, let's bring it bring it forward just a little bit to start the show tonight I'm gonna start with a couple of tracks just by chance, complete chance, I happen to pick, um, I happen to pull a couple of records that both feature a guy named Michael Maximenko. He is a guitarist and singer, and we're going to hear two um, very different, well, not very different, so two, two somewhat different groups featuring Mr. Maximenko. He is uh, hes Swedish. Did I say he was Swedish? I probably did already say that. Swedish guitarist. We're going to hear first a track from a band he played in when he was really young. He was uh, like 17 or something. Very, very young, uh, which is depressing because the, the, the guy, if you're a musician, the guys in this band are just incredibly, incredibly good, and they were teenagers at the time. Uh, it's a group called and Stalten, which... I believe means the reptiles in Swedish. So we're gonna hear we're gonna hear a track from that trio. I've played them a lot on my show over the years. I don't think I've ever played this track. I'm about to play, so you know this will be new-ish to some of you. Uh, after that, we're gonna hear something from a group called Crazy Backwards Alphabet. Crazy Backwards Alphabet put out just one record, one album. Uh, in the late 80s, I'm going to say 80, 1987, 1988, and it was a sl- somewhat odd collection of people. Michael Maximenko again, Henry Kaiser, who a lot of you will know, guitarist Henry Kaiser, John French, and Andy West on bass. And they put out, as I said, one one album that was released on SST, of all labels. And the funny thing is that um i found it's on spotify a lot of just i'm i'm you know <laughs> i'm not going to give a pro spotify rant here please but it they are they are i am finding more uh, really obscure hard to find and unexpected stuff on spotify so the funny thing is this this album is on spotify crazy backwards alphabet the 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 joke is that they completely miscredited it. It's credited as, like, John French or something, one, one of the um, one of the members of the group, which is not true. It's it's a band called Crazy Backwards Alphabet, so if you want to find it on Spotify, you might have some trouble, but you can do it. So, all right, so we're going to hear Carl Justin Salton and then Crazy Backwards Alphabet, both featuring uh, Michael Maximenko on guitar, both, if I may say, extremely complicated then we're going to hear a couple of other uh, i don't i'm not going I'm not going to reveal everything I'm not going to you know going to limit the spoilers here but we're going to hear a couple other you know modern ish like 80s 90s things after that and here we go
4: I we will not be burning Det må vi ha att upp skiten hit de Gör han friktig och njuta och koddra Vi bara rummet för nästa art Ingen minnumö, jordlar inte bli Äck och bered mig, jävla fart Terminen får fasta ringen, bränligt svigen du du Sörja blåhyllan, där luften som att andas Vi är här från Preppa, himlen svart Nu är tiden funnit nya att andas Ytidsbästen som rönt I vägen Vägen på vilken bil vandrar Kom så långt i påsen som jag lyckte ta Järnland går till strandar Jag vill gått där, tur är kvart Flänken är slunda, kvart Jag vill det, är, är svunda, kvart Önskar jag förgläsa i era poesi Lyriska doder om tombromiljorden Får hindra din svart och grå Välkomna nya dodens män och kvinnor Önskar jag förgläsa i poesi Lyriska doder om tombromiljorden Får hindra Så jag du är på Det